Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast with your host, Mike Glover. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Today we're talking about everything tactical pistol. What kind of pistol do I need to choose? What caliber? What optics and sights work best? Grips, all the different accessories that are available, lights, holster considerations. And we'll definitely talk about some drills that you could do to better improve your ability to handle and run a tactical pistol. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And you know, these tactical episodes are always popular. They're always fun to, to do. And I hope by the end of this, you'll be able to make and select the pistol that works for you for the right tactical scenario. All right, guys. So what is the tactical pistol? What is the difference between any other pistol that's standard and then your tactical pistol? You know, I talked about this in everyday carry and we talked about what are we going to use and what for a specific application? For example, if I'm you know, winter carrying, everyday carrying a gun, that winter gun is going to be different than potentially my summer gun. You know, you're not in Wrangler jeans, and I know you guys wear Wrangler jeans. You're not in Wranglers during the summertime. You're in board shorts, workout shorts. So your carry is going to vary dependent on the conditions in which you carry them. So, you know, a tactical pistol, in my mind, is a pistol that's specifically used to defend your life. And it's pretty simple. But how do you choose a pistol that's specifically used for defending your life? So what I've done is basically break it down into a few categories that will give you the best bang for your buck and prioritize really what defines a tactical pistol over any other pistol. All right, so the first consideration or characteristic of a tactical pistol I look at is speed, right? Speed is how fast can I draw that pistol and effectively get on target and be fast, but also be accurate. You know, it's speed and accuracy, but speed's the most important element because the assumption is you're going to be accurate. You know, at the distances in which we find ourselves defending our lives are typically in close proximity. And you could assume to say that if you're defending your life with a pistol, more than likely you are in close proximity to the imminent threat that's presenting itself. And you need to be fast, but also be accurate. I remember the first time I started getting into defensive tactical shooting for competition, I started with IDPA. It's the International Defense Pistol Association. But basically, it's you know a shooting competition in which you use cover and more real-life scenarios, defense-type scenarios, and you're measured by your time and your accuracy. And so each one of these stages or these scenarios are set up, and you might do four to six stages per competition. Typically, you're blind to the stage. You don't know what it is till you show up. They tell you the course of fire, and then you shoot it. And whoever has the fastest time and is the most accurate wins. Well, these were good because they allowed me to see what equipment was best utilized in these defense-type scenarios and what worked and what didn't work. Part of IDPA also is you have to draw from concealed, meaning you have to have something over your holster. Now, I will tell you that I remember first starting to shoot these competitions, and I started in, in North Carolina, and most of the guys who shot these competitions had gamed the shit out of these competitions. You know, they didn't use real cover. For example, their holsters weren't concealed 
by sticking them inside their pants like you would probably typically do in, in a real life scenario. But they had like these vests, these 511 vests that were designed to efficiently get to your concealed holster that was like sitting right behind your vest and they would draw quick because they wanted to be faster. And rarely did you see anybody who was taking a holster, putting it inside their pants, taking their purse or their jacket, pulling it out of something and then drawing it. It was typically gamed. And, you know, that's just the nature of gaming, period. But you saw a lot of really not realistic or non-realistic aspects of it because it was a competition. The biggest benefit was I got to see what pistols worked and what pistols were faster than other ones. You know, I started this competition and the first gun that I used was a, a SIG P220. And I've come out and openly said this. I'm not a big fan of SIG. You know, a double action, single action pistol to me, in my opinion, is big and clunky. And part of the reason I developed that opinion of the SIG is because the SIG as it sits, a big clunky clunky gun, is inherently slower than almost any gun out there because of the way it's built. And I started to realize that when I started shooting these competitions. You know, I teach, when I teach tactics, that you could only perform as fast as your gun performs. So your gun, when it fires and goes through the cycle of operation, it shoots, it recoils, the slide reciprocates, and it goes into battery, and then you could fire again. Well, there's certain things that allow it to shoot that fast or shoot faster split times. Part of that is your recoil rod and spring and how it sprung. Part of that is the power factor of the ammunition that you're shooting. Another element to that is the weight of the slide and how fast it reciprocates or how slow it reciprocates. There, and there's a, a couple of variables that change in there. The grip in which you hold that gun could change those factors. So like if you ever heard of somebody limp wristing a gun, it's because they're not holding the gun tight enough for the slide to reciprocate fully to allow the chambering of another round, which is injection, extraction, feeding, chambering, locking, a whole bunch of shit, right? I know these cycle of operation guys are going to hit me up on this and be like, hey, you had that backwards. It's a whole bunch of shit. Well, what I'm basically trying to say is there's a lot of variables that happen in pistols that are inherent to the gun. Now, you could change these things, but really at the end of the day, especially when it comes to slide weight and ergonomics of that gun, they're going to impede your overall ability to perform because they have limitations. Well, what I found was the P220, the SIG 45 that I was shooting, was limited in its ability to get on target fast. And I, I remember thinking, well, I want to reduce recoil. Well, some instances in the battery of operation, you want recoil there because you want a faster split time. The time in between shots, you want it to be faster because you want to get more rounds on target faster. So when we look at speed, we have to measure these things. So in these IDPA competitions, I was realizing my SIG, no matter how fast I ran it, was slower than a single action pistol like a Glock. You know, a Glock is a single action only firing pistol. There's not a lot of moving parts. It's really simple. The cycle of operation is fast. The spring and recoil rod are adequate for reciprocating the slide fast. And it's just an overall faster gun. And I started realizing this in these scenario-based competitions that 
demonstrated really the practicality of these weapon systems. Always in the top bracket, especially when, when you're looking at stock pistols, was Glocks and these other centerfire guns like that came along. Smith & Wesson M&Ps, Springfield Armory XDs, and now the new FNs. Another element that I look at when I'm selecting a tactical pistol is the safety mechanisms. When I first started in special operations, we had M9 Berettas, and then I migrated to Glocks. And then I saw 1911s on the battlefield. I used 1911s in combat. And I took note of all the safety mechanisms that existed in all these weapon systems. If you take the 1911, for example, there's a few safety mechanisms that are obviously apparent. You have the slide safety mechanism. And I don't know if I'm saying this right, but it's basically it captures the slide and prevents the slide from reciprocating or moving. And then you have to depress it with your thumb. It's a thumb slide safety. Another safety is the grip safety which is, you know, you see them on Springfield XDs. They've always been on 1911s, which is a grip safety in which you have to hold the gun and grip it properly in order to be able to engage the weapon system. So again, back to this IDPA thing, I remember one time I was doing a competition and I would draw my 1911 and I had a Springfield Armory 1911, a beautiful gun. I would draw it and then I sometimes because of my grip, I would biff the grip, meaning I would not fully engage the grip safety. And this caused me obviously to, to have a malfunction where I depressed the trigger and nothing happened. Well, I would think immediately that it was a malfunction and I would go to slap rack bang. I would slap the bottom of the magazine. I would pull the slide and try to get rid of the shit round that wasn't working. And then I would cycle another round and then I go back to it and it would work. But I would realize later that I was actually biffing the grip safety because I didn't have a good grip coming out of the holster. You know, that's part of that is a lack of experience at the time. I'm not getting a full grip out of the holster and, you know, it happens. Well, time and competition, especially with pro timers, when you're under the microscope, you're stressed out. You know, that's a, a way to induce stress into a scenario is time somebody. You're your own worst enemy in these situations, but that stress is, it can be correlated to real life stress in a real life situation. So I thought about that. And I'm like, dude, if I actually biff that grip in a real world scenario, I could be dead. You know, if it's my draw versus somebody else's draw and whoever draws the quickest and is on target wins, I would have lost that gunfight and I would have been killed. So it made me look at the safeties of these pistol features. And what I mean by safety is I want a gun that's simple to operate. I want a gun where if I pull it out and I'm looking at milliseconds which means the difference between life and death, then I want a gun where I could pull the trigger with a half-ass grip because you know, I could be in a situation where I'm laying on my side, I'm laying upside down, I'm in a vehicle, and I'm not in a position to get an adequate grip. Well, if I pull that trigger, I want it to go bang. So it changed my outlook really on how I looked at pistols. I wanted less safety mechanisms on my gun. So that way, when I drew my gun, I knew I was getting on that trigger and I was going to be doing work. And so... When you look at some of these guns like this double action, single action SIG, these guns, just like the Berettas, just like most of these European guns, were built for law enforcement or the police officers that were in these environments. And they were built in order for a law enforcement officer to have safety mechanisms in place where they didn't have an accidental discharge. Well, you don't have an accidental discharge if you're not prepping the trigger 
when you don't need to be on the trigger because there's not an imminent threat. For example, like on a SIG platform, you could actually pull the hammer back and have a single action shot only. But I can't name any situation where I'd be pointing a gun at somebody and decide, hey, it's set up for double action, but I'm going to pull the hammer back so I can give myself the benefit of having a single action pull. Or where I would want a gun where I went to draw it, and because the first round out of that gun, that first trigger depression is a double action shot, where when I pull the trigger, the hammer drops back and then forward, where I would want that in a weapon system. I would want it to be single action only. Well, again, most of these guns were designed for law enforcement, and they were designed to have long trigger pulls or more poundage in trigger pull in order to be safer in the field. And to me, that's asinine. I mean, I'm using a gun to defend life, and I don't want to have all these safety mechanisms to impede my ability to go to work. When I have a gun pointed in a direction, and I have my finger off the trigger, and I decide I'm going to go to work, I don't want anything impeding that. I don't want anything slowing that down. All right, so the next thing I look at is feel. And why do I say feel? Feel is really the ergonomics of the gun and how it feels in your hand, how it feels during carry. That's really important. You know, a lot of people look at aesthetics of a gun. They look at the outside and they go, that gun looks cool. But unless you feel it, unless you put it in your hand, unless you shoot it, you don't know how it feels. You don't know if it's too much recoil because the barrel shorter or because you have small hands and it's too big of a frame or vice versa. So when we look at Phil, you need to have something that works for you because the first time that you have a gun and you buy it because you're looking at aesthetics and then you get on the range and it just doesn't work for your hands and it just doesn't feel right, then you don't want to have to have that regret of having to deal with it. I see it all the time for people who buy Glocks, for example. Glocks have horrible grip angles on them, and they're not really ergonomical. They're not real friendly. And the most popular thing now that I agree with is changing the grip angle on a Glock and making it more like a 1911. There's percentages on this shit, and you could look it up, but there's an angle that's optimal for the best feel for the gun. Another consideration is seeing how that gun operates in your hand. I will tell you that I have problems, and a lot of guys that I know who use Glocks who have larger hands... I grew up on 1911s. I grew up on these SIGs, and I'm used to having a high grip on the pistol with my support hand. Well, if you do that with a Glock, you impede the slide catch, which will obviously induce a malfunction or cause you to not have a slide lock on the last round because you're depressing the slide catch. And because you're depressing it, it cycles all the way through on the last round. And then you don't know until you go click and there's no bang. And then you do a, a slap rack bang, and then you realize you have an empty mag. I have that problem. So what I do is people who put extenders on their slide catch, I don't use extenders on my slide catch. I just use the flat one that Glock makes. And it's a little bit harder to do a slide catch release, but I don't impede a malfunction. Well, depending on your hands, depending on how you hold a gun, you could have those same kind of malfunctions or those same kind of issues if you haven't used it. So definitely use it. So again, speed, safety, and the feel are important characteristics of a good tactical pistol. All right, so the next thing we need to look at is we need to look at the caliber. You know, calibers are important when looking at buying specific tactical pistols. I always recommend going with a 9mm cartridge because it's cheap. You could buy it in bulk and you could shoot the hell out of it. And the thing with buying a pistol, and a lot of people want to do this, 
is they want to get a fancy cartridge. You know, they want to get something that's sexy. You know, these guys with these 5.7 FNs, those are cool guns. But what is the practical application? Are you going to use that gun in training? Are you going to rep the shit out of it? Or is it going to be something that you use every once in a while? I recommend the 9mm because I talked about this in the EDC. 9mm cartridges nowadays, you can get an adequate 9mm cartridge that has characteristics in it that are built for defense. You know, whether it's serrated, whether it's hollow point, whether it's Teflon, there's a whole bunch of different, I guess you can call it technological advances in ammunition that make it more lethal. So it's it's not the days of, you know, the 115 grain full metal jacket not being able to stop a threat on impact. So if you're looking at, for example, a Glock 17, I mean, you're looking at a gun that has 17 plus rounds and can do the job. And now you have the ability to go out and shoot it more often as opposed to a 40 cal or a 45. That's a more expensive round. You know, you're going to have these pistols set aside that do a whole bunch of different things. Like I have the sexy, cool pistols that are, you know, my SIG 220-45. It was a special forces gift for a deployment and I'll never get rid of that gun. But I don't use it often. It's a safe queen, just sits in my safe. But for my tactical defense pistol, it's a pistol and a caliber which I could use frequently. And then it gets the reps as opposed to being this sexy gun that I never use. So one note on caliber, a lot of guns nowadays have the ability for you to change and swap calibers. For example, a Glock 17 is the same exact frame as a Glock 22. So if you have a Glock 22, for example, in 40 cal, you could buy a nine mil conversion barrel from Lone Wolf and put in the barrel and now run nine mil magazines. And then now you're good to go. And now you can shoot nine mil, but you have the advantage of the 40 in defense. I recommend doing that. If you're set on getting a 40 cal, get a 40 cal and then get the conversion barrel so you could shoot cheaper and more adequate. You know, every once in a while, you want to shoot the caliber, obviously, that you use in defense type scenarios to get used to the recoil. But you could shoot the shit out of nine mil and it's just more efficient and more cost effective overall. You could also do this with 22. There's a couple companies and I've used them before. They're not the best but they make 22 conversions for these guns. So let's say you have a nine mil and you're training your kid or you're training somebody who hasn't ever shot a weapon system before. You could put in a 22 long rifle barrel swap and mag swap. And now you're shooting 22 out of that pistol. The same thing uh, applies to Glock. So lots of considerations to look at when choosing your specific caliber. All right, so the next thing we're going to look at is pistol features. And what do I mean by pistol features? So when you buy a pistol nowadays, it has a whole bunch of different things that you could change and swap out. One of the most popular things nowadays is to mount an aim point or red dot optic to the top of the slide, where you have backup iron sights, you know, the rear and front sight, but then you have like a Trigicon RMR, you have a Leopold Delta Point, you have a red dot optic on the top. It reciprocates, obviously, with the slide, so you have to pick that up, but you just basically overlay the dot on the target, you pull the trigger, and it goes off. Well, nowadays, as an accessory, they're making the slides pre-milled, so you have the option of mounting that. They're typically in a pro series or a, a better plussed-up version of the gun that costs a little bit extra. Another feature is they're adding adjustable backstraps to the guns. Adjustable backstraps, obviously, if you know everybody has different size hands, you can get a better grip on the gun to manage recoil. And it's just a neat little feature on the gun that helps you with the ergonomics that I talked about as a good characteristic and feel of a tactical pistol. Now, remember, when you're choosing a tactical pistol, you want a pistol that you're comfortable with. 
So all these things that add to ergonomics, whether it's the optics, whether it's the sights, the grip, whatever it is, the more the merrier. If it feels good and it's right and it helps you be faster and helps you be more accurate on target, then the more power to them. So look at these different pistol features when selecting the best practical and tactical pistol for you. All right, so next I already talked about a little bit, but is the optics. You know, there's a lot of different optic selections for tactical pistols. What I use, I like black rear sights and I like a fiber optic rod in the front end, which is just, you know, a reflective or a brighter front end sight to be able to pick up the front sight faster. You know, you have to practice and you have to use the actual sights in order to get better at them. Some people just like plain black. Some people have trigicon sights that are night sights. So they pick up a little luminescent dot so they could use it at night. It just depends on really what the application is. For tactical shooting, I recommend using the rear sight and then the fiber optic front sight. And then obviously for low light or whatever, using a white light source as a defensive option to go to. You know, we talked about the red dot optics or red dot sights. And that started really from the open series class of IPSC where competitive shooters were using these SGC, these fixed framed optics, red dot optics for competition. And what you're seeing is obviously you could shoot faster because you could acquire the target faster by overlaying a single dot really in the background of your vision and while you have target focus, and then you could pull the trigger and press and be on target. Well, in a defensive scenario with these optics, you know, there's a little lull time and, you know, it's mounted on the slide. So it reciprocates. So you see it go out of your field of vision and then you see it go back in. Well, the advantage is obviously you could acquire a target faster and it's proven. I've read some good articles from professional shooters in the industry who have tested it and they can acquire the red dot faster than they can. Obviously the iron sights, the disadvantage is, Hey, what happens when the battery runs out on your RMR and you go to draw your pistol in a defensive scenario and now you don't have it? Or what happens when you're in a scenario where that field of view is disrupted? Well, it's good to have these backup iron sights, but I'm a firm believer in train how you fight. So if you have it on your gun, you need to train to be good at it. Another disadvantage is running a tactical pistol, depending on the scenario. You know, if you're a SWAT guy, and you're running this pistol that's set up where you're in a staging area, you have time to do pre-combat inspections. That's one thing. But if you're a guy who carries this in an appendix carry holster in the middle of your belt line, it is a little bit impeding when you're putting it in your belt line as opposed to a slimmed down version of it. I have nothing against red dot sights or red dot optics. I just haven't used them enough to be sold on them completely. Another consideration, the last consideration is also getting some kind of laser that's a, adhered to your gun. You know, some guys use Crimson Trace, which is a popular company, and it's good for defense, especially for beginners. You pull out a gun and you want the effectiveness of pointing a laser at a target and pulling the trigger, knowing it's going to be on target. I would say the biggest thing that I've seen with Crimson Trace or with any kind of laser mounted system is people use them as a deterrent. They think that, hey, part of the defense process is this escalation of force with the gun. And if you have a laser, it could be used to scare away intruders. Well, I don't believe in that. You know, if I pull a gun and I'm using it to defend my life, I'm not trying to scare anybody from potentially not hurting me or not harming me. But I can see the application. You know, if you're if you're in your home in a defensive type scenario and somebody breaks in and they're trying to steal your TV, 
and you got a gun with a laser on it, that might be the right state of mind created for that person to not move, to wait until the cops come, as opposed to just pointing the gun in the direction. I don't know. I believe if you get it, you use it for the application it's designed to be used for, which is point and shoot, and it could improve your abilities to be on target. Another element is lights. You know, lights are important parts of defensive tactics with pistols. We obviously don't fight just during the daytime in optimal weather and optimal conditions. A lot of this happens at night, whether it be default of criminal activity or whatever it is, you know, you have to be prepared at night. A lot of people carry firearms, but they don't take in consideration what they would do if they had to draw their gun at night. And I'll tell you that the scariest thing, and it should scare you, is the legal considerations or ramifications if something goes wrong. If you're in a crowd of people at night or in a dark place at night and you pull a gun on somebody and you can't identify really the imminent threat, you know, they could be holding a cell phone, be holding a, a gun. You don't know because you can't see and you don't have the ability to light them up. Not even talking about really what's behind the target in a low light situation. I would just be really hesitant to pull a gun on somebody. I obviously would do it if I had to, but I'd be hesitant to pull a gun on somebody and not have an adequate light source to illuminate the target that I'm going to engage. So I would look at lights as a serious consideration for the tactical pistol. Some of the best ones that I've used, obviously, are the Surefire X300 and X400, which are really popular brands. I think the difference between the three and the four is the four has a laser also attached to it. And also the TLRs. The TLRs is a great light. It's more on a budget and it works really well. The only thing that I would say about lights, period, that are mounted to the pistol is obviously they impede your ability to conceal it. So if you're doing, again, if you're a SWAT guy, that's not a consideration because you're doing overt operations. But if you're, you know, have a tactical pistol for everyday carry, you might want to consider just doing a handheld, which I use, where I just keep it in my pocket. And if something happens simultaneously, I'm drawing a gun and getting to my light. And, you know, you have to practice that and learn how to shoot with that. Uh, there's a couple different techniques that work really well with that kind of tactic. Another element is holsters. You know, your everyday carry holster is going to vary from, you know, your overt carry holster. Even when I teach courses a lot, I teach gunfighting. I'm not really focused on the draw because people have different setups for their draw. I don't want to teach appendix carry draws and then half the class carries their gun in their purse or they carry their gun in their center console. What I want to concentrate is on the gun fighting outside of the draw. The draw is on you. You know, how you figure out where you're going to carry the gun, how you rep that to muscle memory, that's on you and that's on you to practice. So I don't concentrate my efforts there. Well, when I teach those courses, I use a Safariland ALS. A Safariland ALS is an external holster, an overt holster that has a thumb latch that locks up the gun. It's a locking system that locks the gun in place and offers some form of retention. I've seen it all the time. These guys run these quick holsters that you know are IPSC or IDPA bound, and they don't have locking mechanisms. And then when you're running around, guns are coming out of holsters that are hot guns. And obviously, that's not good. So I would concentrate on getting a holster that has retention because if you're holstering a gun, you might be using a carbine and then you might find yourself in a situation where you're on the ground, you're behind cover, and now your secondary is bouncing around in and out of a holster. And that's just, you don't want to have to worry about that. So when I look at concealed holsters, I always talk about my two favorite holsters, which are the Wicked Holster, 
and also like the T-Rex holsters. T-Rex holsters, they make different versions of it. I use the Raptor, which is just holds the pistol and retains it in the appendix carry, which is center line of your belt. Or you can have a pancake style where you run it inside the belt, but on the other side of your hip, your right or your left side of your hip. I prefer appendix carry because it allows an adequate amount of space. The barrel's down in your crotch region, bore line down, but it's more comfortable and it's faster to get to, than, from my experience, than having it on the side of your waist. All right, so now let's talk about some tactical drills that you could do to step up your tactical game of pistol. Now, one of the things you got to look at is obviously what you need to do to accomplish really some tangible results from practicing tactical gunfighting. And so I'll give you a little bit of my philosophy, my training philosophy on shooting, period. You know, shooting and training to be better at defensive tactics is similar to going to the gym. You know, you can't just walk into a gym with no plan and expect to see results. You know, if you go into a gym and you're like, ah, just do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, then you have no structure, which doesn't allow you to measure properly your performance. And then you can't really quantify where you're at and where you need to be. So what I tell people, especially in training, is when you show up, you have to show up with a plan. I frame this reference into uh, office spaces, like cubicle shooting, I call it, where people go to the range, right? And they lay down their little table, they get their little box of ammunition, they get their gun, they load it up, and they keyhole, you know, and they fall in love with these groups of fire that they shot, and they feel accomplished, like they somehow got something out of it because they're keyholing, and then they walk away from it. Primary considerations is one, if you're not inducing stress, you're not replicating real life scenarios and physiological processes, then you're not practicing for a real life situation. If you go and you there's no measures of performance, you're not looking at your accuracy or your speed, then you can't quantify what you're accomplishing. And then moving into or taking yourself to the next level isn't possible. So really you have to go there with a plan. And you know, I don't harp on this, but I say, hey, make a plan. It, a plan is better than no plan. And hopefully you guys listened to the last podcast about planning. Make a plan, go there, quantify it, write down your results. And then the next time you come, you kind of have an expectation of where you're at and then where you need to be. What I look at is building efficiency in these models. You know, gunfighting, practical gunfighting doesn't require a lot of principles of marksmanship. Marksmanship versus tactical gunfighting varies. It's different. Holistically, there's a whole bunch of applied applications in both that make sense. You know, if you look at front sight alignment, well, yeah, that's an important frame of reference for both marksmanship and tactical shooting. But stance, stance isn't one. I don't need to be standing erect in a fighting position. I don't need to be anything other than concerned about aligning my upper body because you might be in a car, you might be under a car, you might be behind a telephone pole, you might be running to the left, fleeing to the right. So stance really isn't a consideration in gunfighting. So when you're looking at applying these drills, apply them, practice them, but make sure they make sense in a real life scenario. If it doesn't make sense in a real life scenario, then you probably don't need to be focusing on it. My overall training philosophy is that you work a bunch of subtasks really in a scenario or a culmination. And if you work those subtasks and you perfect them, then when you go to culminate, you just have a better product in the end. And that's the whole objective. If I'm practicing, for example, vehicle exits and then moving to a firearm and then engaging a threat. Well, the whole 
duration of that scenario in its entirety is the culmination. Well, if I take getting out of the car, you know, and I isolate that and I rehearse it to perfection and then I, I repeat it to muscle memory, then when I get out of the car, that little moment in time, that specific subtask is perfected. So then when I culminate with everything else, it just gives me a better product. So you have to identify these subtasks, perfect them, and then culminate them together. IDPA, IPSC, some of these are good examples of culminating the courses of fire at the end in the stage, which is measuring performance. But without that, you aren't really able to gauge it. And you don't want to have to gauge it in a real life scenario like, hey, I practice these things and, and you know, I'll wait for the culmination when I actually do it in real life. You could practice these culminations. So the first drill that I like to do out of the box for people is something that I learned in my contracting days using a pistol, and it's called diagnostics. It's really gauging your diagnostics and seeing what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, and almost familiarizing yourself with shooting. What you do is basically at five meters out or 15 feet out, you take a target, a static target, and you shoot both hands together. And you want to aim small, miss small, so you don't have to have a particular target. I like to use these one inch by one inch pasties and you shoot with both hands and it's slow aim fire. Your objective is to group. Then you go to the next pasty and you do the same thing, right hand or strong hand. Again, the entire point is to group. You switch to your left hand, go to the third target and do the same thing. And then you go to the last target and you do it rapid fire. And what you're doing is you're basically measuring your diagnostics of what you need to do per transition. I'm right-handed, left eye dominant. The same way I shoot with both hands together is different than I shoot with my right hand or my left hand. And you'll start to see things that you need to do. Like for example, for me, I know if I'm engaging a target with my strong hand because I'm left eye dominant, and there's a couple other variables in there. When I shoot, I have to aim on the right side of the target to engage and hit center line of the threat. And so you're going to start seeing things that you could identify in this diagnostic prior to getting your gun on. And, you know, some say this is a warm-up. I'm not a big fan of warm-ups because I think you have a good opportunity to do a cold bore experience or cold bore shot right off the bat with the first time that you draw your gun, which I like doing because you only get that opportunity once per iteration of shooting. But it's a good measure of diagnostics for strong, weak, and both hands together, standard slowing fire and rapid engagement. Another drill I like to do is called the build drill. The build drill is that five shot sequence, that five rapid shot sequence of firing for accuracy, but you're also firing for speed. Now, what you want to do is, you know, this is a measure of your ability to hold your gun properly, to have the proper grip, to have proper trigger control, and to have proper sight alignment or bore alignment. You know, when you're pointing the pistol at the target and you're engaging and you're doing a five shot string, it's going to tell you your split times off the pro timer, but it's going to give you your overall time. Now, if you're not tracking your front sight and you're not staying focused on that target from five meters out, you're going to start missing the target. You're going to start missing that three inch dot. And ultimately what I see this drill do for people is it makes them slow down because you obviously want to be accurate primarily. If you're fast and you're inaccurate, then what's the point? Primarily you want to be accurate. So if you're shooting accurate, then you'll determine your speed. And then by determining your speed in which you could function or operate, then you could work on those fundamentals like grip, like trigger control, like front side alignment to increase the speed in which you fire these shots in succession. One thing that I always identify with people trying to pull the trigger fast 
is, you know, pulling the trigger fast for me is my biggest weakness. But if you take your brain and you say something verbally and you align it with an action, for example, if I say one, two, three, four, five, and I pull the trigger at that same speed, you're actually going to be able to pull the trigger that fast. If you do it without thinking, without conscious thought, and you try to pull the trigger as fast as you can, you're going to experience this boom, 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 boom. And it's this sporadic behavior. So take conscious effort of saying something out loud, like one, two, three, four, five. If you can count that fast, your finger on your trigger finger can move that fast. And so what I see every time is when I'm trying to clean somebody up with their trigger control, is I make them count out loud and go one, two, three, four, five. It improves their cadence, improves more reliable split time, and just overall makes them a better shooter. Another drill which is utilized by really all professionals is the El Prez, you know, El Presidente. There's variations of the El Prez, but the variation that I like to use the most is I use three targets, typically IPSC or IDPA cardboard targets, and I space them equally apart from each other. And I use three of them, one, two, three, and I back off typically around five meters or 15 feet, and you're faced away from the target. When the pro timer goes off, you turn towards the target and you have two rounds per target. So you can go left to right or right to left, two, 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 and that forces you to do a slide lock. So you'll have six rounds in the gun. Once you go to slide lock, you'll do a slide lock reload. You'll get the gun up and then you'll do two, two, two in a shooting sequence. So it works a whole bunch of things. It works transition between targets. It works your repetition and trigger control. It works grip. It works slide lock reloads and it works speed, you know, overall speed and performance. You can't have this drill and have the wheels come off because you won't be successful in it. You know, ideally you want to shoot a zone targets. I think a couple B's is, or a couple C's on an IPSC target is acceptable, but you want to have them center line. And the more you practice this, the more you'll get these gunfighter fundamentals polished up. Hey guys, so that's the end of the episode. It's been almost 40 minutes. I like to keep these under 40 minutes. What I'll do is I will give you guys a link to a whole bunch of different shooting drills that you could do in the gunfighting realm that I support and I like to do. And I hope somehow, some way this episode has helped you look at your pistol, the tactical pistol, and make a better decision at what gun to use and what frame to use. You know, whether it's compact or full-size frame, it's and it's really up to you and which environment you operate. You know, you could have a full-size frame gun or pistol inside your center console in your truck, but you carry a subcompact gun on your person. I hope the tactical pistol characteristics, the elements, they all helped you make a better decision in choosing the right tactical pistol for you guys. You guys can check us out at PhilCraftSurvival.com, on social media at Soft Survivor and PhilCraftSurvival on Instagram. If you guys got any questions, feel free to email us at media at PhilCraftSurvival.com. Guys, it was a great episode. I love talking about this kind of stuff. I hope to hear you next time. Please subscribe. Please leave feedback. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.